everybody. Thanks for joining us yet again uh, for our second Flights podcast. Joined here today by Dr. Bill Hinckley and uh, Dr. Andrew Latimer. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Hey, it's Hinckley. I, uh, I'm an R16. I've, uh, I'm a 15-year flight doc, and uh, nothing pleases me more than to be here recording this podcast with you gentlemen. <laughs> Sir? Hi, it's uh, Andrew Latimer. I'm one of the uh, fourth-year emergency medicine residents here and the uh, resident assistant medical director for air care this year, and uh, uh, pumped to be talking to you guys today. All right, great. Thanks, gentlemen. This week, we're switching over a little bit from our trauma patient over to a patient with an ST elevation MI. Now, this is an exceptionally common patient that you're going to see on air care. Let's kind of set the stage for you, kind of recap the case itself. You know, it's early October. You're a flight doc and C-pod. You're having your usual C-pod blues and, and trials and tribulations. And uh, you get a page, and you're going to fly out to a, a code STEMI patient. You find out on the way that it's alert, not intubated, 280-pound, 63-year-old male that's on two drips currently. You land at the outside hospital and help the nurse unload the stretcher and walk into the ED. And uh, you get the report from the patient and basically find out that uh, he had been having a little bit of chest pain while he was working on his barn. Thought it was heartburn initially, uh, but then his wife kind of made him come to the ED for evaluation. Got a significant smoking history, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, as well as diabetes. Uh, and he's got an EKG, which clearly shows an inferior ST elevation MI. Those vitals don't look all that great. Pulse is 62, blood pressure is 86 over 54, respiratory rate 16, SATs are 95% on 2 liters, and he had a finger stick done, which was 220. Exam, he looks a little bit pale and diaphoretic, but he is alert and oriented, and he's good spirits. Um, lungs are pretty clear, belly is soft, uh, moves all his extremities. Uh, he doesn't have any significant lower extremity edema that you can see, and he's alert and oriented times 4. All right, uh, so first off, uh, Bill, what is a code STEMI? So back prior to uh, 2010, if a referring doc uh, had a STEMI patient, he or she, before activating air care, had to secure the accepting hospital and the accepting physician. And we recognized that that was a problem and that was causing delays, which obviously mean... Uh, increased myocyte death, uh, lower ejection fractions, and uh, worsened mortality and morbidity outcomes. So we set up the code STEMI protocol, uh, Diana Daimling, Todd Davis, Jason McMullen, and many others in 2010 to facilitate as rapidly as possible getting these culprit arteries opened up. So basically what it means is if you're a referring doc out in the community at a non-PCI-capable hospital, as soon as you see a diagnostic STEMI EKG and you know that's somebody you're going to have to get out of your hospital as quickly as possible, you can activate air care at that point uh, without yet knowing for sure where the patient is going. And uh, thanks to collaboration with cardiology here at UC Health, what enables this protocol to exist is that um, if the normal referral process to whatever hospital that referring doc normally uses doesn't work, they can't reach the cardiologist, uh, the hospital's uh, in some sort of a hostage standpoint, what, what, what have you, um, we always have default auto-acceptance at UC. Doesn't matter what the patient's insurance status is, doesn't matter if they live in West Virginia, we will take them. 
So therefore, we know we'll always have a backup. So that's what enables us to be activated from the get-go. Now, how this impacts you as a flight doc is this. If you get there, you evaluate the patient, you get them packaged, and you are ready to roll out the door, and you think to yourself, wait a minute, where am I going? And you ask the referring doc, where are we going with this patient? If he or she says, I don't know, I still haven't gotten a call back, at that point, you can then offer, not demand, but offer to have the patients auto-accepted at UC. And then the patient, if they are awake and have capacity, can participate in that decision as well as the referring doc. If they both agree to go to UC, boom, you're good. You go and you uh, call 4AMEN and you say, activate the cath lab, please, we're coming for a STEMI. If, on the other hand, they say, um, if the patient says, no, my doctor's at Christ Hospital, let's say, and I want to wait for them, you, you have to honor that request even if you feel like it may not be the best thing. So uh, that's the gist of Code STEMI. There are other things as well. Another part of Code STEMI is that we don't continue heparin, nitro, or integral in drips uh, because it takes time to switch over to transport pumps and we're, they're going to be stopped in the cath lab anyway. And we also, when it is uh, safe to do so, we encourage hot loads and unloads because that can save another couple of minutes. Yeah. So, Talk about what kind of impact that's had on the, some of the times that we've had. So if you look at Dido, door in, door out, uh, so it, let's say a patient comes into McCullough Hyde Hospital with a STEMI. What the Dido is, the time from when they first cross the threshold of the door of McCullough Hyde Hospital till the time you start rolling out the door with them on your air care stretcher. And it has been shown in very rigorous literature published in JAMA that for STEMI, Dido correlates excellently with mortality. Pre-code STEMI, to post-code STEMI, we have decreased our DIDOs by about 20 minutes. And so there is no doubt that that has improved overall mortality. Excellent. Very cool. All right. So let's get back to the case here. What are your thoughts on, on STEMI patients in general and this guy in general? Like I said, these are very common patients that we see on air care. And so uh, you know, we can tend to get uh, a little bit blasé about their presentations. But what are your thoughts or your sort of um, brief learning pearls approaches on these patients? Yeah, so when you when you get to the bedside of one of these these sorts of patients, kind of the, the quick things I run through my head. Typically, I'll uh, usually you'll kind of discuss this with the nurse ahead of time, but they'll head towards the drips, whether that's discontinuing the drips, you know, securing IV access, getting some paperwork, uh, talking to the nurse and getting a sign out. Typically, what I'll do is talk to the patient uh, and the nurse, um, taking care of the patient at the time while I'm. Um, kind of undoing the wires and cables and everything that have them attached to their current monitor, putting them on our monitor, and I go right for the pads. Uh, part of this is to ward off evil spirits, but uh, part of this as well is because uh, uh, I've had a number of these patients go into a rest on me that look awesome when you pick them up. Yeah, um, you were telling me before the podcast started, you have a pretty interesting record with your code stimmies or your STEMI patients. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. I was working through the numbers the other day because I'm, I'm a geek like that and keep track of it all. But up until last night when I flew a STEMI that did not arrest on me, I was batting 500 for uh, patients that uh, were awake and talking and arrested in flight. And so I hope that you, doesn't reflect on my clinical ability. So but, you uh, clearly have a black cloud. <laughs> it's appropriate that you're wearing black since you're apparently the Grim Reaper. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, luckily last night... Uh, 
there was not the case. Um, but uh, to ward off all those evil spirits and uh, to not end up with a patient in the aircraft, no pads on and, and V-fib on you. Um, every patient, I talk to them, I introduce myself, and I slap pads on them. You know, sir, can you sit forward and slap that, you know, AP pad on them? Um, so... I do that. While I'm doing that, I get a brief history either from the nurse or from the patient or both. You know, quick medical history, previous coronary artery disease, they have cabbage, have they ever been stented before, do they have any known coronary artery disease at all? Um, getting sort of the pertinent past medical components, allergies, all, all the basic stuff. While I'm doing that, um, kind of doing a kind of crash, STEMI physical exam, which really is talking to them. You know, when you're talking to them, you're getting their alertness level, feeling their pulses. Um, an interesting point brought up by Dr. Whitford in the comments here was, uh, obviously, we do need to consider dissection specifically in some of these inferior MIs. So making sure you get uh, kind of uh, all four extremity pulses, at least the, the radial arteries bilaterally, and seeing if they're grossly uh, uh, similar. But looking at their neck, making sure they don't have obvious JVD, taking a quick listen to their lungs, listening for crackles and whatnot, um, and then looking at their legs. And usually just with that sort of a crash exam, you can get a really good idea um, if this patient's in acute decompensated heart failure, if they've got pulmonary edema, or if they're just kind of a run-of-the-mill stem that looks looks pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we talked uh, with obviously with the code STEMI stuff that we're doing a lot of different time saving measures, and you know, one of the places that you can save a lot of time is in your history and your physical, making it extremely focused. So that you have a good approach there, Bill. What's your approach on these patients? Uh, I, I think of it as the less than sixty second air care STEMI H and P. Um, honestly. I don't care too much about past medical history beyond do they already have known coronary disease because if they just got stented two weeks ago, that's probably relevant. Um, I can you know I can figure out the rest of the past medical history meds and allergies later by reviewing the paperwork. Um, I want to know when their symptoms started. I want to know have they thus far during their ED course or their pre-hospital course before that had hypotension, bradycardia, heart block ectopy arrhythmia um, and then uh, physical exam super quick just as just as Latimer just described um, the uh, the other thing that is in in my spiel to the patient assuming that they are conscious I will say something to the effect of sir or ma'am you're gonna notice that it seems like we're moving fairly quickly here and that's because we are moving quickly is important when you're having a heart attack and we want to get the artery that's blocked opened up so we will do this safely and we'll explain things as we go but uh, that's why it seems like we're moving quickly just to give them a heads up because the patients notice when we're when we're uh, hustling, and uh, I, I, I want to let them know to expect that and don't be alarmed because it's for their benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so some of these are kind of answering question one pretty well. You know, looked at basically what are your thoughts at the beginning of the patient, and the second piece was what can you do to help more rapidly facilitate the movement of the patient from uh, to your cot from the the stretcher and to the aircraft, and what are your responsibilities as a flight physician, and what are the nurses' responsibilities? Do you have assigned roles? You know, talk a little bit about that. Like when you are helping out, um, and you and the nurse are working as a team to help take care of this patient. Uh, what are the sort of things that you tend to do, uh, Dr. Latimer? You said you strap, you slap on the pads. You'll come up to the monitor as well. Is that right? Absolutely. So I do that that kind of crash physical exam, take as much history as I can. Although a lot of times that like we were saying, happens kind of in the room with both you and your, your flight nurse partner. But throw them on the monitor, get them on the pads. And typically I'll leave the uh, 
the drip. So this particular patient is on dopamine and um, a heparin drip. So both of those can go. I mean, we know why this particular patient in this case is hypotensive, right? They got a bunch of nitro, looks like they've got a big inferior MI, and uh, that correlates well time-wise with their kind of drop in pressure. So we probably want to get both of those off. Um, and as uh, Dr. Hinckley discussed, um, uh, part of this, the code STEMI protocol is to discontinue those heparin drips. And that saves an immense amount of time. And just because our flight nurses are way more facile with IVs, IV lines, and getting this stuff kind of packaged and stowed, I tend to let them go towards that. I get the patient on the monitor, get the cot ready, and get everything ready to drag them across. And typically, you can have all of this done in about 60 seconds, 60 yeah. to 90 seconds. So you're telling me this hypotensive patient, you're going to stop their vasopressor? Um, I think you're being generous calling dopamine a vasopressor. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Please educate me. Yeah. Um, in this particular patient, um, again, I think we, we know why this patient's hypotensive. They've, they've got uh, probably a uh, – uh, they do have an inferior MI, probably RV uh, involvement, and this patient looks like they're preload dependent. They need some fluids. Um, they got nitroglycerin, which is vasodilated, kind of that the venous supply there, and you've dumped their preload, and that's why they're becoming hypotensive. So I would squeeze fluid in this person. You know, if we've got a nurse standing by at this outside facility, I'd want to get a liter of fluid in them as quick as we can in this particular case. Um, I think dopamine is kind of a poor pressure, presser, uh, specifically in acute MI, um, largely due to the, um, uh, the likelihood of causing an arrhythmia, uh, and that concerns me greatly in this sort of a patient. There, there are not too many 100% absolute knee jerks in medicine, but uh, you've got altered mental status, knee jerk, what's the glucose? you got a patient on dopamine, knee jerk, stop the dopamine. <laughs> um, Absolutely. One of the biggest complications we're worried about in this patient is arrhythmia. Why would we give them something that they don't need because what they need is preload that increases the chance that they go into VFib? 100% agree. Yeah. And the final part of that question one was one that I think that uh, can be tough for us to remember because it's kind of a logistic documentation type thing, And um, but it's important nonetheless. And so uh, it was. What are your? What times are you responsible for knowing and documenting golden hour? It's important because it, it it has to become part of your history. Then, if you're if you're responsible for recording those numbers, so what are what are those numbers? Basically, door time and diagnostic EKG time, um, and that's something that honestly I don't worry about while I'm at the referring ER. I I figure that out later from the paperwork. Yeah. But I, I'm just looking for the earliest documented time that they arrived at that hospital so that we can calculate a DIDO and I need to know when the diagnostic EKG time was. Often that's the first EKG, sometimes it's the second or the third, but what we're looking for there is if there was a delay of 30 minutes between the diagnostic EKG and when air care dispatch first got called about this patient, then we know we've got some education to do about the whole code STEMI thing that they can call us right away. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it. What it means is you got 20 seconds or so that you need to briefly look over the paperwork that they hand you and make sure that there's a you know a timeline in there or some other you know documentation of first time presentation and have your EKG. The EKG is usually there, almost always there, but right. so that other documentation is always vari variable from hospital to hospital. Right. And Jeff, in terms of your question, uh, what what is my responsibility on this flight? I basically it comes down to. The quick HNP we just discussed, I definitely view it as my responsibility to get the patient on the monitor. Uh, and uh, 
I also view it as my responsibility to get the stretcher up, sidled up next to the hospital bed that they're in. Now, sometimes the flight nurse is able to move very quickly with drips and meds and fluids and is able to get to that before me, but I, I view it as a default that it's going to be my job to do it un unless... And one way that I can speed things up with the monitor is if I'm going to do pads anyway, which with a STEMI patient I essentially always would, we can just monitor off the pads for now and hook them up to the actual cardiac leads later in the mm. aircraft. Yeah. Uh, so that can save a few seconds. Yeah, not unreasonable. All right, move on. So uh, just after takeoff, patient turns to your partner and says, I don't feel well, you know, sort of yelling over the helicopter, I suppose. Um, and promptly goes into VFEB arrest. So what are your priorities now for the management of the patient? You know, what do you need to do? Um, what needs to be done? Who does them? And, and then, you know, running a code in the back of the helicopter is not at all like running a code anywhere else, essentially. Um, so talk a little bit about how the environment impacts the care you deliver. It sounds like you've got a lot of experience <laughs> with this, sir, so why don't you take that one? Um, well, uh, kind of as an anecdote, the couple times this has happened, um, almost always I have a buddy rider or some sort of a visitor in the aircraft, and they say, the patient's having a seizure. They're never having a seizure. Um, that's always kind of an interesting tidbit. But uh, a lot of times it's limited by being able to see the monitor. Um, sometimes when you're doing these quickly, the monitor doesn't get end up, uh, end up getting mounted, specifically in the EC-145. So depending on how the crew configuration is in your particular aircraft, you may actually not be able to see the monitor. So that obviously affects things, um, not being able to see the particular rhythm. Um, the uh, uh, this In this particular case, this is a witness to rest, right? So you got the pads on this patient, so what's the first thing you do is you charge the pads and deliver uh, uh, unsynchronized uh, defibrillation, right? So that's something to do. In my, again, limited experience with these, um, the patients will, res I mean, they've almost, in the cases that I've had similar to this, these patients will pop right out of it and you know, puke on themselves or turn and look at you and say, I feel awesome now. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, doing that initially, obviously, uh, early defibrillation and a witnessed, uh, and a witnessed V-fib arrest uh, is great because you still got, you know, you still got oxygen and ATP in those myocytes. Um, now, if, if that's unsuccessful, obviously, we want to continue with uh, ACLS. So um, the, the big take-home point I have here is to not really worry about the airway all that much kind of in that first minute to, you know, 90 seconds to two minutes just because this patient was just sitting up and breathing and putatively was, you know, oxygenating and ventilating okay. So you, you got a second for that. So um, focusing on high-quality CPR, focusing on your defibrillation, and not being obsessed with the airway in this patient who's in arrest, I think is a take-home, especially for new physicians on an aircraft that can get really uh, wrapped up in that. Totally agree. It Two things are really important here, and then there's a bunch of other things that could distract you that are not important. So the two things are electricity and high-quality CPR. And the electricity is easy as long as you already put the pads on the patient. The high-quality CPR, not as easy in a helicopter as it is essentially anywhere else, but is doable. You're going to need to get out of your your belt, you're going to need to let the pilot know that you're doing that, and you're going to need to trade off uh, between you and your partner. You think it's hard in the EC-145, you should have been here in the BO-105 days. Uh, <laughs> even Jeff doesn't remember those, but I, I was there, it was awesome. Um, and then, it, I agree, in terms of airway, 
you may never need an airway in this patient. So often, since it's a witnessed arrest, you're going to get them back in, in the first couple of minutes. So if you distract yourself by, you know, pulling out your laryngoscope, um, then you can lose track of what's really important, which is the high-quality CPR and, uh, and electricity. Drugs, if you get to them, great. But, you know, uh, you guys know as well as we do that uh, there's very little evidence that epi is doing these patients any good. Yeah, totally reasonable thoughts there. You're right. I mean, these patients will usually come back pretty quickly from a from a witness arrest with defibrillation, especially if it was V-fib, V-tac, which is likely, which is likely what the cause of it was. Um, all right. So let's say we were not so lucky. A patient still is in cardiac arrest as you're landing at the receiving hospital. Um, and you're on the helipad and you know you're still trying to resuscitate the patient. What do you do next? Uh, hopefully we will have already let the accepting hospital know that this patient that they're expecting is in cardiac arrest. And uh, obviously the way we would do that is by either calling for amen or calling the air care dispatcher and saying, please let the accepting hospital know the patient's in cardiac arrest so that they're not surprised by that. Um, if you arrive with a patient in arrest and they knew about it, They'll, you know, they understand that happens to STEMI patients and they'll be cool. If it is a surprise to them, the, the interpersonal discussions will be rougher. They, they don't like that surprise, understandably so. Now, where do we go from there? My plan, unless somebody directs me otherwise, is still to go to the cath lab. Um, I realize that a lot of places are not likely to actually undergo a, a cardiac cath for a STEMI patient who's in full arrest, personally, I feel like they should. And so if they don't tell me otherwise, that's where I'm going. Many times what will really happen, though, is that they will direct me to the ER instead to see whether or not ROSC is achieved. Other thoughts, sir? Yeah, every time that this has happened to me that we didn't get them back with a couple of shocks, um, we've, we've called and they've been direct, we've been directed to the ER. And with the exception of one case where we were actually rolling down the hallway in the facility when the patient arrested, and then we kind of, we were already at the cath lab and just rolled in there. Um, the, a big advantage of being in the ER is you end up with a bunch of staff that uh, knows how to run a cardiac arrest. And I found that the arrest in the cath lab was way more chaotic and I thought it went far more poorly. Essentially, myself and the, the flight nurse did all of the CPR, drug pushing, documenting. We ran the entire code, and essentially the cath lab staff was was watching. And I, I don't know if that was because it was a surprise, or maybe it's just not kind of part of their daily routine as often as it is in the ER. Um, but there is an advantage to having the ER staff, kind of in my opinion. I agree the patient needs definitive management, right? We need to get that block coronary artery open. Um, but... Uh, some coordination can be done with that in the ER would be my hope, um, although there's some inconsistency from institution to institution. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a tough, uh, tough situation. You know, the, certainly the recurrent V-fib arrest or VTAC arrest patient uh, who uh, you just can't seem to get back with uh, your typical ACLS interventions. Um, you know, you really get this feeling that all you got to do is just open up that artery, and uh, you know they're going to perfuse the myocardium, and things are going to stabilize a little bit from that standpoint, and uh, it just gets to be it's it's tough. Um, so. All right, so let's kind of back up a little bit. So instead of coming to making it all the way to the aircraft, the patient rests pretty much as you're moving him onto his onto the cot at the referring hospital. Um, you do some good quality CPR and you start ACLS for about ten minutes, but the patient is still in cardiac arrest. 
So what else can you consider at this point, and uh, would you still consider transporting the patient? I'll, I'll start off there. So um, as soon as that happens, you say we're on the air care stretcher now? Um, yeah, you can be on the air care stretcher. You can still be on the, uh, on the hospital stretcher either way, really. If they're on the air care stretcher, I probably would take the couple of seconds to move them back onto the hospital bed mm -hmm. because you can't easily move that air care stretcher up and down to the ideal height that you want uh, for, for good quality CPR. And it's far more unstable from a standpoint of doing right. good quality compressions. I mean, it, the wheels do have brakes, but it's not as stable. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I would look for that referring doc, and I would... I would say something to the effect of, I'm happy to run this. Is that cool with you? And he or she may say, no, no, my ER, I'll run it. Or they may say, no, go for it. And, you know, whatever they say is fine there, but it, it just sort of needs to be clarified who is going to take the lead in running the code. And, you know, further role delineation can occur from there. Who's documenting? Who's doing CPR first? Who's next in line for CPR? Who's pushing drugs? Uh, all those roles. Um, I am at this point, so we're running ACLS, a highly neglected part of ACLS in many instances, which should not be neglected is what the heck is the underlying cause? And in this case, we know with virtual certainty what the underlying cause of this cardiac arrest is. So what can we do about it? Well, one option, which is PCI is not on the table at the moment because we can't do PCI, which is the whole reason that air care is at this referring hospital. And no, I would not transport the patient anyway when they arrested while I was still in the referring hospital unless I did achieve ROSC. So the one other option I've got, as many people in the comments appropriately brought up, is thrombolysis. And if you were at a non-PCI capable hospital, they're gonna have a thrombolytic. How quickly they can get it may vary, but they're going to have one. It may be TPA, it may be tenecteplase, it may be RPA, but uh, someone needs to be tasked with getting that as quickly as possible. And uh, because if if you don't achieve ROSC, then that, you're pronouncing that patient. So the risk-benefit ratio for a known STEMI cardiac arrest of thrombolysis is highly in favor of benefit greater than risk, in my opinion, and uh, I wouldn't call that without without lysinum, personally. Latimer? Yeah, uh, I totally agree. And we'll uh, potentially have those in the black bag one day, right, Dr. Hinckley? Right on. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, I've had some cases like this also with this uh, unfortunate ratio of cardiac arrest on these STEMI patients. And... Um, Interestingly, I've actually transported these patients to these outside hospitals and suggested a patient in refractory VFib um, thrombolysis and had it been turned down, uh, which creates kind of a sticky situation because we do not carry that drug and we're in an outside facility where I don't have privileges. Um, so it's not up to me, unfortunately. Um, and I've actually was once turned down because uh, uh, the outside hospital provider said we did not have a negative head CT, which was a little galling because, you know, we're performing... Uh, CPR on this patient, so I, I would say I don't care. Um, but uh, so there's been some tough stuff um, with that, and I think that's something that potentially uh, providers will encounter on air care, and something to keep in mind. Um, but I totally agree. I think I think that I, I would argue that that is the standard of care for this patient. Yeah, we've got a lot of a lot of patients out there 
who are walking the streets of Cincinnati right now where this exact situation has happened. Um, cardiac arrest at the referring hospital, got lysed and got him back. And I would agree that often it's not going to be suggested by anybody there unless you suggest it. And you, you're right that if they are trying to give you the Heisman, uh, you know, you need to strongly present your case, but if they continue to block you, you, you are in their shop and unfortunately you're going to have to defer. Uh, but I, I would present my case firmly on that. One other thing that was brought up at least twice in the comments um, astutely is that sometimes you have these patients in refractory V-fib or refractory VTAC, especially these larger patients, where you can consider putting two sets of pads on these patients um, and doing the, the kind of double double defibrillation, the, the synchronized double de defibrillation with two people or one person pressing both buttons. I've actually seen that work in a couple of cases, at least in our emergency department. Um, I'm not sure there's a ton of evidence. I can't say I'm that familiar with that. I don't know if other of you could speak to that, um, but that's something definitely to try when you're kind of in this last-ditch effort of these refractory VFib patients. And most of the case studies, as I'm aware, also the refractory VTAC patients, I think there's some literature out there about Esmolol as a potential, but, uh, but again, small case series type, type publications, nothing that's uh, larger at this point. I have, uh, I have tried Esmolol for refer, uh, refractory VFib. I have not tried the double defibrillation. I'm not opposed. It makes some sense, but I agree. I haven't seen a ton of evidence yet. I've tried that once. It did not work. Um, and it, logistically, it is a challenge to do so. But, uh, you know, we're talking last-ditch efforts here right, right now. I mean, this patient is dead, and if you, uh, you know, can't get them back, then they are staying dead. So you might as well sort of try everything that you can. Yep. I have seen the double defibrillation actually work twice myself. Uh, once cool. in the field with uh, paramedics, um, <laughs> not related to air care, uh, interestingly. But Very cool. Cool. All right, gentlemen. Thanks for the great discussion. Um, any last pearls or thoughts on these, uh, on these STEMI patients? You're going to – here's how it's going to go. You're going to have, in all likelihood, two or three initial STEMI flights with – no heart block, bradycardia, shock, arrhythmia, and you're going to get lulled into a sense of complacency. Um, guard against that because <clears throat> very soon you're going to have one that is going to have florid shock or is going to be some sort of a masquerading dissection or you're going to have to pace them because they go into third-degree heart block. These patients do get sick. And just because the first couple STEMI transports that you have seem simple, don't let yourself get complacent. Um, the other thing is, uh, in the comments, a lot of people astutely brought up, obviously with this inferior STEMI who uh, got shocky with nitro, they are likely an RV infarct. And so uh, there is a tendency to think it would be nice to have a right-sided EKG or a posterior EKG. And yeah, that would be nice, but ultimately what the patient needs most is to get their, their artery opened up. So if you're dealing with a STEMI, I would never delay transport to get a right-sided EKG if it hadn't already been done. Uh, just if it's an inferior, I just assume, I just go with the assumption that this may well also be a preload-dependent RV infarct. And so I'm going to have any inferior MI, I'm going to have crystalloid hanging. Even if I'm not infusing it, I'm going to have it ready to just flip the switch and open it up wide open if they get hypotensive. And I'm going to be cautious 
with medications that drop preload. I'm not going to look them in the eye with 10 out of 10 elephant sitting on their chest, bone crushing pain and say, I can't give you anything, but I'm going to be ju judicious. I probably will go with fentanyl 25 mics at a time. Yeah, that's not unreasonable. I mean, I, some people are of the of the thought that nitrates are completely contraindicated and inferior stimulus, which is which is just not the case. And it is a case by case basis. You have to be super cautious and uh, super aware that you may drop their pressure. And if you do, it's because they were preload dependent, and you can give them a little bit of preload back. Um, but just pay attention to them time after time, and also note where they're starting. Right? If the patient's starting at a pressure of one eighty five over one twenty or one sixty over 90 then okay they got a little bit of room that's okay if they start at 100 over 50 or 100 over 70 or whatever um, then you know you might be a lot more cautious about that patient um, but i agree your your thoughts of fentanyl as your uh, as your next agent is uh, uh, or even as a first agent in some of these patients is right on one other thing that we haven't discussed yet um, is metoprolol so during my residency at that time it was felt that back when the dinosaurs were around? Yes, sir. It, it was felt that uh, aspirin was number one for mortality improvement in STEMI and metoprolol was number two. And then uh, the, the huge 50,000 patient Chinese COMMIT trial came out in, I think, 06. And what COMMIT showed is that metoprolol kills as many patients as it saves. It, it, so it improves STEMI mortality by decreasing ventricular arrhythmias, but it worsens STEMI mortality in terms of increasing deaths from cardiogenic shock, and it does so in equal numbers. Uh, so if we can identify a patient population that is at very, very little risk of cardiogenic shock, then it probably would be benefit greater than risk in terms of what it does for decreasing arrhythmia. So... Um, we don't give much metoprolol anymore for STEMIs, and mostly we need to focus on just getting the culprit artery opened up. But if you're on a, one of the longer STEMI flights where you've got some time and you are thinking to yourself, this patient has been consistently not only normotensive, but hypertensive, and they are young, less than 70, and there is no sign that they've got uh, cardiogenic shock no pulmonary edema, uh, either on your exam or on x-ray. And furthermore, they don't have any other contraindications to beta blockers, such as bronchospasm. Uh, then I actually do still give those patients, and only those patients, beta blockers. Um, but if they are old or they have uh, signs that they may be in cardiogenic shock, then at that point I, I think that it's risk greater than benefit and I don't mess with it. Sir, any other thoughts? Pads. Pads on every patient that's a STEMI. Uh, I totally agree with the complacency thing. I think that can be really common because these can seem like, a, you know, quote, quote, boring flights. Um, and uh, my last parting words of wisdom would be uh, pay really close attention to your patient in the elevators because uh, elevators kill STEMI patients. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you.